This evening I've chosen as my title, Paul's Solution to Division at Corinth. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in 1 Corinthians this evening. Division is a human problem because we're humans. We make mistakes. We get irritated with each other. But God's people are called to unity. This is a problem in our culture and in our society, and it definitely finds its way into our churches. So I'm going to look at what Paul's solution to division is this evening. I want to begin by looking in, first, or in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul talks about his desire to have unity with mankind. God's plan was that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. God's plan has been from the beginning to bring us into a relationship with Him, to have, a, to have a family, and for each of us, through Christ, to be a part of that family. We read about these promises that God gave to men like Abraham in the book of Genesis, where He promised that through Abraham's seed, He would bless all nations. God's plan has been to have unity with His creation. If you remember last Sunday night, David spoke on Jesus uh, instilling unity in his disciples. And he read this passage and he's, uh, where Jesus said, I do not pray. He's praying to God. He says, I do not pray for my current disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect and one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. God is a God of unity, and we see that the Trinity, there is perfect unity amongst each of those members. Jesus said, you and I are one. And Jesus prayed that his followers would be one in them. And David talked about how the greatest apologetic, the greatest way that you and I and the church can influence the world to believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God is not with great philosophy and science and anything like that, but it's in love. It's in unity. That is the way that we reach the world. So do you think unity was important to Christ? It was. He prayed for it. Do you think it was achievable? Do you think it was his goal for man or for his followers to have unity? I believe it was. We could summarize God's view of unity in Psalms 133, verse 1, where he says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Why is it God's plan for us to have unity? Because it's good for us. It's pleasant for us. Now, as God looks down on His creation from heaven, and He looks at the culture here in our country and across the world, what do you think He feels when He looks at mankind? What do you think He experiences when He looks at the division and the hatred and the murder and the strife and all the problems that man has? I bet it breaks His heart to see His, pe or his creation riddled with division and strife. But I think even more so, 
It breaks his heart when he looks at those who claim to be his followers riddled with envy, strife, division, parties, denominational alliances, and teaching all sorts of things. I think it breaks his heart. So what can you and I do about it? There's a lot of denominations. There's a lot of problems out there. And you might be thinking, I'm just one guy sitting in Plainview, Texas. How am I going to make an impact? Well, the way that we make an impact is we can control what we can control. You start with you, and I start with me. Embracing an attitude of unity. We need to embrace an attitude of unity in this congregation. And as we take the good news to others... We need to show them the importance of unity. And I've been studying this so that I can do that in a better fashion. To show them that God's plan was not for lots and lots of churches in every community. But to have one body, one church, one goal to unify under Christ. A theme that we're going to notice a lot in the, in the scriptures that we look at tonight is man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. This theme permeates all of the Bible, but I really want to focus on it as James contrasts the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. James asked this question, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above but it is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So is all wisdom good? The answer is no. Not all wisdom is the same. And James talks about two contrasting kinds of wisdom. In verse 15, he talks about the wisdom that does not descend from above, but it is earthly, it is sensual, it is demonic. That's the wisdom of man. But in contrast, you have the wisdom that comes from God. What are the fruits of the wisdom of man? Bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts. And he says, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. As we look out into our culture and into the world, that's what we see. Why? Because our world follows the wisdom of this world. This is what man does. And it leads to all this strife, self-seeking, envy, and every evil thing. But God calls us to a higher standard. The wisdom that comes from above. And he says, if you have this, it creates Things that are pure and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of the righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, an overarching theme of the passages that we're going to look at tonight is man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. And Jeremy talked about that this morning. Are we trusting God? Are we trusting the wisdom of man? But we're going to think about this in light of unity in the church. The, the wisdom of the world, as we find out in the book of 1 Corinthians, it exalts religious leaders. It creates a system of pride, envy, competition, and division. 
But Paul's solution for them was to trust God and His wisdom with each seeking to submit to Christ, not to men who are talented. And this creates love, peace, humility, and unity. So remember this as we go through this study tonight. I hope you remember this theme as Paul talks about it. Now the reason Paul's talking about divisions is because he hears about it. He hears a report in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Paul understood that was from the wisdom of the world. And so he's going to write to them to address not just the problem, but the root of that problem. And so he's going to give them very specific instructions and teach them how to avoid the division. Now, that says 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. Don't be too intimidated by this. We're going to fly through it, and we're going to look at it from a bird's eye view. There's a lot of details we're not going to cover. I initially, when I started putting this sermon together, I was going to study just part number 2, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. But as I studied it, and I looked at the context, I realized Paul spends all four chapters making his point. And so I want to follow Paul's train of thought as best as I can as we go through these uh, four chapters and look at Paul's arguments about why division all comes down to you're not trusting in God, but you're following the ways of the world. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, Paul opens up his letter to them. We're not going to look at that, but he sends them greeting and he thanks God for the church. And he immediately jumps in to the, the problem of division. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I am of Christ. So he wastes no time getting into this problem. And he says, I'm writing because I've heard about these divisions that you've got going on. Now initially he says, I plead with you, I beg with you, I want you to realize this is important to me. And he says, I beg with you, not on my own behalf, but on, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand what it means to ask or to beg or to make a command based on someone's, uh, someone else's name, don't we? When I was young, if my sisters came in and said, hey, you need to do this or do that, I would not have listened to them. But if they would have said, mom or dad says you need to do this, I would have recognized they were speaking under the authority of my parents. And I would have listened. And that's what Paul does here. He says, it's not just me that's telling you this, but this is the Lord Jesus Christ telling you these things. And he lists the four different things that he wanted them to be unified. Four different ways of being unified. He says, you need to all speak the same thing. Now, if you look down at verse 12... Were they speaking the same thing? No, they weren't. One person was boldly proclaiming, I belong to Paulus. And another person was proclaiming, I belong to Paul. 
They were not speaking the same things. And this disputing created division in the church. He said you need to speak the same thing. He says that there be no divisions among you. That word division, the word it's translated from the Greek is schisma, where we get our word schism. Divisions mean it's ripped, it's torn. You are divided. He says this does not need to happen in the church. Number three, you need to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The Greek word that's translated into perfectly joined together is the same Greek word that's used in Matthew 4, verse 21, when Jesus called John and James, and the Bible says that they were mending their nets with their father. That word mending, meaning fixing and repairing and restoring that net, that's the same word that he uses here to uh, translate perfectly joined together. It's also the same word that's translated in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where it talks about restoring a brother. They didn't have unity. They were divided. And Paul says you need to work constantly like those fishermen. Every day they go out and they fish and they come back and they mend their nets. And that's where unity is. We have to constantly be working to seek that unity, to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Whose mind, whose judgment do we need to be unified under? The Bible talks about us. Uh, the New Testament talks about being unified with the mind of Christ. So after he says this, he says, the reason I'm telling you this is because these people from Chloe's household, they told me about it. And he says specifically, there are divisions where people were forming these alliances and they were proudly claiming allegiance not to Christ, but to men. These people had been baptized. In Acts chapter 18, we read about Paul going to Corinth. And these people heard him teach that message. They had become Christians. And in verse 11 of that chapter, the Bible says that Paul had been with them for 18 months, helping the church to grow. But after he left, these men came in and they started exalting themselves. And Paul says that now they're proclaiming allegiance not to Christ alone, but also to these men. Men who once called upon the name of the Lord are now placing their importance on mere men. So Paul says, you don't need to be doing that. Now what's the end of this road that the church at Corinth was going down? What was Paul trying to stop? He knew that these divisions would become so firm that eventually these people would go over there. And there would be a church formed under alliance of this spiritual leader. And there would be a church over there that had an alliance or allegiance to this spiritual leader. Very similar to what we see in our culture today and under the Reformation. Paul said this is not acceptable. This is not what Christians do. In verse 13, Paul asks some rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? No, Christ was one individual. Was Paul crucified for you? No, it was Christ. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Paul couldn't do anything for them. It was Christ, and he wanted to put the emphasis back on him. In verses 14 through 17, he, has a, he makes a discussion about uh, baptizing. And I don't know why he doesn't clearly state this. Maybe they took pride in who baptized them. 
And some people are saying, well, you were baptized by that guy, but I was baptized by this guy. Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize a lot of you because that would create a problem. Now, in verse 18, he transitions to our main theme that we discussed from James chapter 3. He's going to show them, not that, or he's not going to just tell them you need to be unified, but he's going to show them the root of their problem, and it was that they were trusting man's wisdom. In verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, wisdom in the world's eyes, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he introduces this idea of the cross being received by some who view, uh, for those who view that, that the cross was the power to save, those received it. But those who viewed the cross as foolishness, they ignored it. In verse 26, we see that Paul talks about God's way of, of sharing his wisdom. or of um, We see the way he accomplishes his purposes. It's by using things that the world would not use. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God had chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. God's goal in all aspects of this world and all of creation is to bring glory to himself. That's his goal. And he shows us how he accomplishes his goal. He says the wise of the world, the mighty, the noble, are too concerned with the world. Not many of those people are called. But God uses things that appear foolish and weak and to accomplish his will. Jeremy talked about two of those this morning, right? When the children of Israel, they come before Jordan and they send out the spies... Ten of those spies said, we can't conquer giants. They're, they're too great. They did not trust the wisdom of God. They trusted the wisdom of the world. And then he talked about David and Goliath. Who in their right mind would send out a shepherd boy with no military experience, with no armor, before the greatest champion of the Philistines? That's foolish in the world's eyes. But God used David to bring glory to himself. And David knew that. He said, I don't come to you with great weapons. And he wasn't mighty, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And God uses him to this day to bring glory to himself. Now, what's the point of bringing all this up? Well, here's the problem. These men in Corinth, they were glory in the flesh. They were, they were exalting men of great talent and ability. And Paul says that is the wisdom of God, or the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God is not to do that. Paul says in verse 29 that God does this so that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So the Corinthians, they were trusting the wisdom of the world, the hierarchies and the structures and the philosophies of the world to exalt men of great power and abilities to rule over them. This was opposed to God's wisdom. 
Paul tells them that you should not be glorying in the things that are in the flesh. Paul tells them to glory only in the Lord, not in men. These men had once had an allegiance to Christ, but now they were exalting men. Now as we move into chapter 2, we see Paul reminds them of how he acted when he came into Corinth. In verse 1 he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So he said, when I came to you, I know your tendencies to trust in the wisdom of God, or the wisdom of the world. He said, I didn't come to you to appeal to that. I came to you speaking simplicity, things that are simple. He was intentional not to point the emphasis to himself, but to point to God, so that they would not trust in man, but in the wisdom of God. In chapter two, or uh, in chapter two, verses six through eight, Paul transitions to this idea of the wisdom of God coming to them through the apostles, and he says, "However, we, speaking of the apostles, speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing." But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he says, we, the apostles, we came to you speaking a wisdom that does not come from this world. The rulers didn't have it. The wise of this world didn't have it. We came to you speaking the wisdom of God. In the verses 12 through 13, he tells them how they received that wisdom. Through the divine revelation and inspiration from the Spirit. He says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now remember, God's plan is to use simple, basic things of the world to lead others into a relationship with Him. And Paul says that's the way we as uh, the apostles have conducted ourselves. We have come with great um, eloquence and great abilities and, and shown how great we are. We came with a simplistic message as Christ has called us to. And we, we shared that wisdom that came from above through the Holy Spirit. In verse 14... He says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The man who has the wisdom of the world in mind, who prioritizes that, he may hear the word of God, but he says he does not receive the things of God. For they are foolishness to him. He hears the words of God, he treats it like trash, because that's foolishness to him. That's a man with a fleshly, worldly mindset. People reject the Word of God because they're consumed with things of this world. Now, as Paul transitions to the Corinthians, notice what he says about them in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. 
And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For, one, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So, he just talked about this natural man who did not receive the teachings from God. And he transitions to them and he says, when I first came to you, I had to speak to you as a carnal person because you came out of a very worldly mindset. Their culture was worldly. It was fleshly. It was consumed with things of this world. And the Corinthians were influenced that. And he said, when I spoke to you, I spoke to you as carnal because you were babes in Christ. But here's the problem. They hadn't grown. They were still babes in Christ. He says in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. These Corinthians, Paul had been with them for 18 months, and he had been away from them for some time, and they still were babes in Christ. That's the problem. We read about this theme of, of babes in Christ looking to the Word of God for growth throughout the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, As newborn babes desire the sincere or the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. I think I quoted the King James there out of habit. As a person becomes a Christian, if they don't consume and drink in the word of God, they're not going to grow spiritually. And that's exactly what the, the Christians at Corinth had done. They had not drunk it in. And they were still carnal. And Paul said, I know you're a carnal because there are envy, there are strife, there are divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? These Corinthians were too focused and influenced by the wisdom of the world. They were not taking in the scriptures and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And what was the result? These parties, these alliances, these divisions, these schisms. And Paul says, you're behaving like mere men. You're acting no better than men of the world. In verse 4, he says, for when one says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? He said, you're acting carnally. And let's, re let's remember this theme from James chapter 3. The exact words that James talks about, those were the things that the Corinthians had. They had bitter envy. They had self-seeking. They had um, confusion and evil things there. It was because they were trusting the wisdom of the world. Paul says you are carnal because you, because you are trusting the wisdom of the world. Now, he transitions in chapter or, uh, verse 5 to this question, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers? We're not people to be exalted as spiritual leaders, to be heads over you, but we are to be your servants. That's the wisdom of God. Through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. And then he uses this analogy that we refer to very often um, in this passage. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. We understand how difficult and how miraculous is it for a person to come put a seed in the ground. Wow, that's something special, right? It's nothing special. What about taking some water? And dumping it on the ground. There's nothing special about that. 
The miracle is what God has done in the power of that seed by creating it with energy to grow and to turn into a plant. And Paul uses this analogy to prove to them we're simply just workers in the kingdom of God. There's nothing to brag about. We're just doing what we can. It's God who has made the increase. They were ministers. They were not masters, not heads of political groups or divisions. Paul continues to explain this with an analogy in, in verses 8 through 17 using an analogy of people building a house. And he refers to himself as a construction worker. Not something that deserves a lot of glory. Not a person who deserves a lot of glory. It's God's house. God gets the glory. And he summarizes uh, the thoughts from this chapter in verses 18 through 20. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. If anyone among you seems to be wise according to the world, you have to stop that. You have to become foolish according to the wisdom of the world so that you can maybe become wise according to God. For God catches the wise in their own craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The wisdom of the world leads men to self-pursuit, self-exaltation. God says those things are futile. In verse 21, he, he gives application of this thought. Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world of or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, they all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. They were claiming that they belonged to these men. And they were putting emphasis on these men of great influence and great talent. But Paul says, don't boast in these men. These men are just workers and laborers in the kingdom of God. In reality, it's backwards. They shouldn't be above you, but they should be viewed as your possession. They are yours to help you and to help you to grow in your relationship with Christ. He gives a list here in verse 22, and he includes Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. And he says, all these things that are in the world, or all these things God has given to you, things that are in the world, to help you to grow in your relationship with Christ. That was his goal. It was not to exalt these men and their great talents. And in verse 23, he reminds them, you do not belong to these men. You belong to Christ. That's where your allegiance lies. So don't exalt these men who are instruments of God to be head over you. You belong to Christ and Christ alone. In chapter 4, Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Servants and stewards were common positions in, um, in the society of that day. And he says, that's the way you need to view us. Not to be heads over you, not to be masters over you. I thought it was interesting as I was looking at some of the lexicons, the word servant, the root word for that is under rower. And immediately I thought about the ships of that day. Uh, if you've ever seen a movie or documentary about ships of that day, oftentimes these ships would have lots and lots of men underneath, men that you couldn't see, and their job was to get the ship to its destination quicker. Paul says, that's the kind of guy I am. I'm not here to bring glory to me. I'm a guy 
in the belly of a ship with a bunch of other stinky, sweaty men just doing my work. That's the way you view me. That's the way you view those who are workers and spiritual leaders in the kingdom. He says, view us as servants. View us as stewards. The wisdom of the world exalts men based on their talents and abilities. It trusts men, wants men to be over them. This is the story of Israel wanting a king over them. Rather than trusting God's plan and God's wisdom with judges, they wanted to be like everybody else. In 1 Samuel 8, verse 4, the Bible says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations, like the wisdom of the world. But the king displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all the way they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. They had the wisdom of God. They had the plan of God. And they said, we don't like it. We want to be like the other nations. We want to follow the wisdom of the world. That was the exact same thing the Corinthians were doing. They were not trusting God's plan, but they were exalting men based on their, their talents and abilities. In verses 3 through 6, Paul talks about human judgment. And he says it's really not important. Judging people based on their talents and abilities is not important because God gave everyone the things that He chose to give them. <clears throat> As we move to uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 13, Paul contrasts the, the lifestyle of the Corinthian leaders of that church Versus the apostles. And he tells them, you're living like kings. You're exalting yourself to rule over other people. In verse 8, he says, you're already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. That's not what spiritual leaders do. But spiritual leaders do what the apostles did. In verse 9, he says, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last. As men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst that we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscuring of all things until now. These men were exalting themselves based on talent. And Paul says the way of the apostles, those who are leaders, they're viewed in the wisdom of the world as trash, as foolish, as weak, as dishonored. You see, the apostles have been taught by Jesus that the way to be exalted is to be humble. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus called to them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. The wisdom of the world is what the Gentiles followed. The great ones become rulers. But the wisdom of God says the great ones become your servant, and they push you upward. The apostles had learned this from Christ, and they were trying to teach the Corinthians this same way. But the Corinthians weren't buying it. 
Why? Because they were trusting the wisdom of the world. They, said, they thought that the way that they could become exalted was by pushing others down, by forming these alliances, by fighting and envying and strife. In verses 14 through 21, we see Paul conclude this, uh, this uh, part of his, his letter. And in verses 14 through 15, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. He's saying, I know I've been harsh, I know I've been stern, but my goal has been to restore you, because I love you and I view you like my children. And he tells them how they need to be restored. Number one, therefore I urge you, imitate me. I am a messenger of God. I have been given the wisdom of God. I have shown you in my teachings, in my doctrine, and in my lifestyle. You need to follow me. Not these religious leaders who are causing uh, strife by, by following the wisdom of the world. And then Paul tells them how he's going to help them to imitate him. In verse 17, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Imitate me, don't exalt me. Follow me as I follow Christ, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I put my faith in the wisdom of God. You need to do the same. This is the way that you need to live. And Timothy is going to help you. He's going to remind you. He has my teachings. He has my example. And he's going to remind you and show you how you can lose your faith in the wisdom of the world and gain your faith in the wisdom of God. For Paul, the solution to their division was going back to the teachings and the examples of the inspired men. It wasn't in any other way. Paul's conclusion was that we have to go back to the teachings and the examples of inspired men. That was his solution for the Corinthians. So that's the first four chapters in a nutshell. I know it's been long, and I know we've covered a lot of material and I hope that I've, if nothing else, instilled in you a desire to go through and study these things closely for yourself. The Corinthians were too focused on worldly wisdom. They were not taking the scriptures in. And what was the result? It was, this, it was these problems. It was this division. It was exalting men based on what the world would perceive as a man who is strong. That's not God's. So I want, to, I want to think about, in light of what Jesus prayed for unity in his prayer in John 17, in light of what David wrote in Psalms 133, and in light of what God says about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man, what are some applications for us today? Number one, if Paul came here today, I think he would tell us that we need to put our faith in God's word, especially when it is contrary to the wisdom of the world especially. The world might think that we're fuddy-duddies, it might think we're weird, but God calls us to be peculiar people. And we need to put our faith in the wisdom of, the, of wisdom of God, especially when it's contrary to the wisdom of the world. So let's examine ourselves. Am I a natural man who doesn't receive the Word of God? Am I a carnal man who proclaims Christianity, but I'm obsessed with the philosophies philosophies and the wisdom of the world or I am a spiritual man who drinks in the word of life who follows God and trusts God 
and receives His blessings. Where's your faith? Where's my faith? Where we put our trust makes all the difference. It did for the Israelites when they wanted a king. It did for the Corinthians here, and it will for us. Number two, we need to put our faith in the word of inspired men like Paul over religious leaders. There were religious leaders who by every worldly wise thing, they were leaders. They needed to be followed. But Paul says they're not trustworthy like the inspired men. There are countless numbers of books and spiritual leaders in the world today with all sorts of various messages. How do we find the truth? How do we know the wisdom of God? Going back to the Bible. Trusting those men who are inspired. Be as biblical as possible as we can be in our lives, in our congregation, and in, our, in, in all ways. Number three, we need to build our faith through diligent studying. The Corinthians were not doing that, and they were not growing. And if we're not studying ourselves, we're going to be babes in Christ too. Don't matter how long we've been a Christian. If we're not growing and studying the Word of God, or if we're not studying the Word of God, we're not going to be growing, and our faith will not be growing. Number four, we don't need to allow worldly wisdom to sneak into the church. Exalting talented men, forming alliances, forming divisions, and putting stamps of approval with official names. That's what the church of Corinth had done. It had become a talent show. They had exalted men. They were trusting the wisdom of, God, uh, the wisdom of the world, and they were structuring the church like the world would do it. Paul says don't do that. That's not God's ways. If we look out into the world today, and we look amongst Christianity, what do we see? We see those things in existence. Men being exalted. Churches named after very specific individuals. Alliances, divisions, denominations. And all of these people who proclaim to be Christians put their stamp of approval and say, yes, I am of this denomination who follows this set of rules and this set of rules. God says that's not the way of doing it. We need to be careful not to allow worldly wisdom to sneak into our congregation and into our lives. And finally, we need to do these things in the spirit of humility and not pride. That is an area of my life I've struggled. It's an area of my life I have hurt feelings and I have definitely not brought glory to God. In an effort to convince someone of unity and convince convince someone of the importance of these things, I've used the sword of the Spirit to cut them down and to cut them into pieces. And I'm ashamed of that. We can use the sword as a weapon, or we can use the, the Scriptures as a divine standard for us to lay before people and say, here's what the Word of God says. This is what we're trying to do. Will you join us? That's an attitude of humility. We need to have an attitude of humility, not pride. Those are the things that Paul would plea for you and I today. And I hope that you will consider these things. You'll meditate on these things. You'll read through the book of 1 Corinthians and examine the things that we've studied tonight and apply them to your lives. We're going to offer an invitation at this time if you have a spiritual need that the church, that the church here can help you with. We want to help you, so let us know by coming and sitting on one of these front pews as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.